History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard. I'm here in the HHE studio with the Tai Chi to my Wing Chung. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. That seems oddly relevant. I did my research for that one. <laughs> uh, uh, as we know, last week the Dursleater gave us the jaws of death in 1200 to 1300 in Hong Kong. So, Ryan, what have you got for us today? Well, in this episode of Deadly Danger, Pete, we are going to be heading east, far east, to a land where peril lurks around every corner. We're going to discover the death of a dynasty. We're going to meet the patriotic child who ended his song with a terrifying cliffhanger. Join me in prizing open the sharp-toothed mouths of some man-eating beasties and witness a miraculous escape from the certainty of destruction. I am tingling with anticipation. (laughs) Yeah, all right, let's get going. Skyscrapers and temples, islands and waterfronts, towering buildings and shimmering lights, bustling streets and mountainous trails, this is the land of Dragon's Back and Big Buddha, where rich cultural legacies meet dazzling modernization. Welcome to the shopper's paradise. Welcome to the fragrant harbour. Welcome to Hong Kong. a country, Pete. Is that correct? It is a region within China that is allowed to operate independently. Officially, it's the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of the People's Republic of China. It's on the coast in Southeast Asia, near the bottom part of South China, roughly halfway between Macau to the left and Taiwan to the right. And if you don't know where any of that is, find Australia, head north through Indonesia and Malaysia, and kind of boom, it's right there. Hong Kong is at the mouth of the Pearl River estuary, surrounded by the South China Sea. It consists of Hong Kong Island, Kowloon, the New Territories, and a couple hundred smaller islands, 263, in fact. Hong Kong is approximately 1,104 square kilometres, that's 426 square miles, which is 0.2% the size of a France. Wow, that's a lot of Hong Kongs to make a France. Yeah, it's 498 times smaller. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty small. Climate-wise, it's subtropical, so warm, humid environment. Much of the urban development there is concentrated on the Kowloon Peninsula and Hong Kong Island, where many of the sort of 7.5 million residents live in 7,687 high-rise buildings and 303 skyscrapers, which happens to be the largest number of skyscrapers of any city in the world. That's a sort of cyberpunk sci-fi city, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Uh, Many of the buildings, by the way, are painted pink. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the skyline, but many of them are pink, and that is because it's the cheapest paint. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I looked it up. Red ochre is what's used, but they just water it down and then you get like a pink. Outside of urban areas, the terrain is sort of a mixture. It's mangrove swamps, forests, sandy beaches, woodlands, mountain ranges, grassland, you know, sort of stuff. Uh, In fact, three quarters of Hong Kong is countryside, with a total of 24 country parks, which when you think such a small size, that's, that's a lot of country parks. So that's your population rammed into an even tinier area. Tiny, tiny place. 
Hong Kong is also one of the three global financial centers, one of the most developed cities in the world. It's the world's 10th largest exporter and the ninth largest importer, which given its size is quite incredible. Remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. The Hong Kong dollar is the eighth most traded currency in the world, home to the third highest number of billionaires of any city in the world. That's the largest concentration of ultra high net worth individuals of any city in the world. So we're here in Croydon, we should be in Hong Kong. That's what I'm hearing. (laughs) There are more Rolls Royces per person in Hong Kong than any other city in the world. Wow. And not going very far either, I would imagine. (laughs) Mostly in traffic. Okay, famous Hong Kongers, Maggie Chung. Do I know Maggie Chung? She is considered the most talented Chinese actress of her generation. Oh, wow. Yeah, acted in 70 films during her career, including Police Story, Comrades, Almost a Love Story, and Hero. Police Story is excellent, as is Hero, actually. There you are. Uh, The first Asian actress to win a prize at the Cannes Film Festival. Ooh. Broke into acting after coming second in 1983's Miss Hong Kong pageant. She thought, beauty isn't for me, I'm going into acting. That's it. Bruce Lee. You probably heard of him. I'm very familiar with Bruce Lee. 70s martial arts film star. Absolutely. Yeah. Born in California, but raised in Hong Kong. Uh, most notable for? Enter the Dragon. Correct. Any others? Way of the Dragon. Yeah. Fist of Fury. Yeah. Uh, Game of Death. Game of Death. There you go. <laughs> the Bruce Lee bingo card I've got. Uh, he is credited as single-handedly changing the international perception of Asian males. Wow, that's quite a task. Hong Kong facts! Inevitably. Inevitably <laughs> Hong Kong facts. The toilets, they make use of seawater to flush. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, it sort of saves the water supply. I mean, it's by the sea, it makes sense, right? I mean, you sort of see a fish every now and then. Octopus. <laughs> Squid passing through. Bye! <laughs> Hey Ryan. Hey Pete. So, you know I've had my bathroom remodelled? Yeah. Well, I've been inspired by the Hong Kongers and now it's rigged up to entirely run on seawater. Oh, oh, well that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's only one problem though. Oh yeah, what's that? Well, if I want to have a bath, I have to wait for high tide. Hong Kong Island. It's famous for having super steep hills. There you're going to find the world's longest covered outdoor escalator. At 2,600 feet long, that's 800 metres, it transports more than 55,000 people every day. It has a vertical climb of 443 feet, it's 135 metres, and basically it changes direction during the day. So in the morning, morning rush hour, the escalator runs downwards, and then after the morning it runs back up. To you that get seems back up. harsh. So it's really up is the harder direction in any time of day. <laughs> yeah, I guess fewer people are going up. <laughs> National Anthem. Okay. There is one since 1978. It's called March of the Volunteers. It's a song that was made famous during the war against Japan during World War II. So I thought maybe we could hear it. I think we should. Oh, I like the zippy opening. Oh yeah, I like this. Perky, isn't it? I can respect an anthem that knows when to call it. I like it, it's really specky. Nice, I like that's on my top ten, I think. It's good, right? Yeah. So there you go. That's a bit of background to Hong Kong. Thank you. Hopefully you're fully oriented. Ha 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 
Right, Pete, uh, do you want to know some history? I would love to know some history. That's why I come here on a regular basis. Okay, inhabited since the old Stone Age. 35 to 40,000 years ago, uh, they found some stone tools in Hong Kong. 4,000 BC, kind of more widely occupied, semi-coastal people called the Che. They are cultivating rice. They are making pottery, small bronze implements, that sort of stuff. 3,000 years ago, the Yuet people arrive and they assimilate the Che people. So also there at this time are the Tanka people, also known as boat people later sea gypsies by the British. So they're boat people called tanker people. Yeah. Because their boats were massive. <laughs> well, tanker seems to be the word for boat. Ah. Yeah. They're still there today, though, which is fascinating. And they're considered to be some of the few indigenous inhabitants of Hong Kong. Approximately 200 BCE, the area becomes part of the first Chinese dynasty, led by Qin Chi Huang. Over 400 years, the population increases. Salt production, pearl hunting becomes sort of industrialised there, or based obviously around the sea. Is that why the pearl River came, gets its name. That's exactly why it gets its Aha. name, yeah. Uh, the Qin Dynasty collapses and the Jin Dynasty takes over. For 300 years, between 600 to 900 AD, the Tang Dynasty is in charge and they start to make the region more of a sort of an international trading centre. The Song Dynasty takes over in 960 AD and rules until the late 13th century, until the Mongols invade and they start a century-long Wan Dynasty. More to come on this All later. Right. During the Wan period, population numbers in the territory sort of explode. Uh, south Chinese refugees flee from the Mongols in the north and they start heading down south. Over the next few hundred years, under the Ming and the Qing dynasties, the Punti, the Hakka and the Hokkien people start to settle there as well. And during this time, Chinese pirates make a name for themselves in the area, with Ooh. Cheng Po Tsai becoming a legend in the 18th century, commanding a fleet of 600 ships and 50,000 men. That's a heck of a pirate job. Right. You Normally think you expect of it. one ship pulling up, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Not 600 of them. Anyway, so the British start to increase their presence in the area around the early 19th century. They're there to trade clocks, watches, and opium. <laughs> <laughs> One of those is not like the others. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for tea, silk, and porcelain. China decides they're going to ban opium though, right? And they impound British stocks of the drug, and that kicks off what is known as the Opium War. Choose drugs, choose a hit, choose some opium. Choose even more opium. Choose a flipping big drug habit. Choose opium pipes and smoke. Chase the dragon to economic disaster. Choose poor health, poverty. Choose no interest in living and steal from your friends. Choose drugs. Choose opium. This message was brought to you by the British Empire. Britain occupies Hong Kong in 1841 as a base for their military during that war. At that time, there were around about 7,450 people living there. The Opium War ends three years later with British victory, and Hong Kong becomes a crown colony of the British Empire on the 29th of August, 1842. In the 1850s, there is an influx of Chinese immigrants arriving from the north and they are escaping floods, typhoons and famine. 1899, there is a rebellion against the British, but that's put down quickly. And from that point on, there's just a period of major transformation. Changes to education, to transport, to all the different industries that are there. And Hong Kong's population booms. It reaches 725,000 by 1920 and it continues to grow from there. In 1984, the British and the Chinese sign a joint 
declaration, with the British agreeing to return Hong Kong to China and China promising to implement a one-country, two-systems regime, under which for 50 years, they promise, Hong Kong citizens will be allowed to continue to practice capitalism and have political freedoms that otherwise were forbidden elsewhere in China. So, on the 1st of July, 1997, the UK transfers control to the People's Republic of China. The word royal is removed from you know, all organisations, except the Royal Hong Kong Yacht Club, by the way. They somehow managed to retain <laughs> that. Statues of Queen Victoria remain, uh, but the Queen's image is removed from stamps and banknotes. So there's like this period of transition. Today in Hong Kong, things are unsettled. Despite the agreement for there being 50 years of capitalism, China has sort of tightened its grip in recent years, sort of cracking down on, on Hong Kong's freedoms, like, for example, trying to amend the school curriculum to focus more on Chinese national identity, imposing a national security law in 2020 that could be used to punish or silence critics or dissenters, uh, implementing a new electoral system in 2021, ruling that only patriots who, in quotes, respect the Chinese Communist Party can run in elections. Hmm. So this starts a series of mass protests across the city, and that is met with reports of police brutality, including the excessive use of tear gas, rubber bullets, that sort of stuff. And since then, hopes are kind of fading that it's actually going to ever become a full democracy. Thousands have fled the city. Internationally, the Chinese actions have been condemned. Sanctions have been applied by the US. The UK and Canada have opened the door for up to 3 million Hong Kongers to move over. And there is a big question over what's going to happen next. There is a very real possibility that the city could face it losing its status as a global financial hub, and that would effectively kill the economy and bring about the death of a mighty and powerful city. You could say that Hong Kong has at this point entered the jaws of death. Yeah, it's an interesting location in that normally the tale of colonialism, especially countries that were run by Britain, is normally a tale of having been plundered essentially and held back. But Hong Kong is that example of a place that's really done well, considering the size of it. It's become this major global trading power. And there is a case that actually the British influence was absolutely very positive for that nation. And now actually they've been given back, which isn't something we generally do with things. It's uh, looking a bit shady for them. So I, I don't know how China can keep an outpost of democracy in an otherwise less democratic nation. So I can't see it ending well. It doesn't feel good to me. So before we get into the sort of the meat of this episode... The meat um, in the jaws of death, I like what you've Yeah, done exactly. <laughs> uh, we, I'll just give you some background to the jaws of death, shall I? Yes, dude, please. Okay, so in 1602, a chap called William Shakespeare... I know I've heard of him. Yeah, oh, he yeah. wrote a play called Twelfth Night. In the play, there is a pair of twins who are shipwrecked. One of the twins, a young woman named Viola, she washes up on a beach. Thinking her brother has drowned, she naturally dresses up like a boy and calls herself Cesario. Yeah, that's what I'd do, Tim. Unbeknownst to her, though, her brother has also survived and has been pulled from the water by a man named Antonio. Now, later in the play, Antonio meets Cesario, Viola, and thinking she is her brother, because they look the same, they're twins, and she's dressed like a man, he says... This youth that you see here, I snatched one half out of the jaws of death. And that is the first known written account of the jaws of death. Now, Shakespeare wasn't literally saying that Antonio snatched a man from the jaws of some 
sort of dangerous beast, rather that he's sort of creating the imagery of that, alluding to the danger of death with which this drowning man was facing. And it's Shakespeare's way of sort of describing this near-death experience, experience that sort of stayed with us. So the definition of jaws of death means being close to or escaping from almost certain death, or to rescue one from certain death. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Those things that come close to or escape from or do not escape from death. Sounds good to me. Okay, so we were talking earlier about the Song Dynasty. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the end of the Song. So the Song Dynasty ruled parts of China for more than sort of three centuries. The Song began ruling China in 960, uh, founded by Emperor Taizu of Song, and became something of a golden age for China. The population grew rapidly, and they were responsible for many of the innovations and things that we sort of consider a Chinese today. Uh, they are the first in the world to issue banknotes or true paper money. It's the first Chinese government to establish a permanent standing navy, and the first recorded chemical formula for gunpowder. Uh-huh. Uh, and gunpowder weapons. Fire arrows, bombs, the fire lance. The fire lance? Mm. I want a fire lance. It's explodey. (laughs) That's why I want a fire lance. (laughs) But the Song state was constantly under pressure from the non-Chinese peoples to the north and to the west. In 1127, the Song are overran by the Jurchen people, who set up a new dynasty called the Jin. Now, the remaining Song, they head south, right? They're trying to get away from the Jin, and they create what's known as the Southern Song. Okay, so they're now heading down into South China, the bottom of South China. Now, in the early 1200s, in the north, the Mongol leader... Genghis Khan, famously, he was leading his people on what he described as their great expansion, ruling over an empire which at that time stretched from Europe, Russia, Persia, all the way to the border with Korea. So a huge that is area. vast. It's, it's a big, vast area. Those words don't really conjure up quite how big that is. I'm looking at the map on your wall right now and <laughs> yeah. thinking, that's a lot of the world. <laughs> it is when you consider that their policy was one war at a time, like one battle at a time. So they wouldn't, they didn't have battles on different fronts. They would just take one guy on and absolutely absolutely batter them. You don't want to be that guy, really, do you? No. <laughs> They've chosen you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that left him relatively few places left to conquer, except South China. So the Mongols attack, and they overrun the Jin, and by the 1260s, under a new leader, Kublai Khan, they start to threaten the Southern Song. But the Southern Song is kind of different than the others they'd faced, right? There's a couple of things. Firstly, the Mongols typically relied on horses, but geographically, South China is mountainous, which is very difficult for horses to get through, plus networks of rivers. So they didn't have a navy, uh, they were horseback battlers. That, that was their thing. So they were unfamiliar with that with that land. And if I could just remind you, fire lance. <laughs> and also fire <laughs> lance, that's true. Um, so it was just too much of a hurdle. And of course, the Song were obviously very familiar with the terrain. So they had sort of home advantage at that point. And they also had uh, an extensive relationship across Southeast Asia with wealthy, resourceful countries keen on them being able to continue to trade. Right. And also a little bit afraid of Mongols. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. So, like, at this point, Kublai Khan decides that he's just going to try and negotiate a peace between them. So he sends an emissary to negotiate with the Song, and the head of the Song government welcomes the man and then arrests him. Kublai is furious by this, and despite the odds not being in his favour, he thinks, ah, whatever, I'm a Khan. Yeah, was that wise, annoying the Khan? No, it's a terrible idea, because (laughs) in 1267, he leads an assault on the Song. And by 1273, so just, what, 
what, six years later, he's captured a couple of key locations, a couple of like fortified locations at the, at the top of the songs area, and uh, also captured a number of the songs Navy fleet. So now he has access to the Yangtze River and he has the boats in which to be able to go up and down it. That is key now to him being able to penetrate deep into song territory. And gradually more and more song land starts to fall to the Mongol horde. And indeed by 4th of February 1276, the song capital, Linan, was conquered by the Mongols. Emperor Gong surrenders, and with the help of some of his loyal members of his royal court, he manages to get his two brothers, the seven-year-old prince Zhao Qi and six-year-old Zhao Bing, to escape down south. Now, confident that the Mongol conquest had not yet been won, those two boys, uh, Zhao Qi and Zhao Bing, they are now considered to be the hope of ensuring the future of the Song Empire. And it was seven years old, did you say? Seven and six. Yeah, I just didn't want to do my chores when I was that age rather than being the hope of an entire nation. Just wanted a skateboard. So yeah, on the 14th of June, 1276, so just a few months after the the Mongols had taken the capital, seven-year-old Zhao Qi is enthroned as the new emperor, Emperor Duanzong. Crumbs. That's a lot of pressure on your shoulders, isn't it? Anyway, so the Mongols, bent on eliminating the remnants of the Song, pursue them into the southern China until eventually there really isn't much south left to go. Eventually, the, the Song arrive and take refuge in Guangzhou, which is about 120 kilometers, 75 miles north northwest of where modern-day Hong Kong is. And in 1278, the now eight-year-old Emperor Duanzong dies of illness. Ooh. So the Song are not having a good time. Morale drops, soldiers start to desert, and the army dwindles smaller and smaller. So, with the Mongols getting closer, the Song leaders take Zhao Bing, who's now seven at this point, and they they flee again. And the only place to go now is into the sea. So they leave the mainland by boat, and they go to present-day Lantau Island in Hong Kong. Aha! Uh-huh. There, on that island, seven-year-old Zhao Bing is made the new emperor. The and emperor of not a great deal at this point, it would seem. Very small, of Lantau Island, at <laughs> that point. So they return to the mainland with their new emperor, and that's where they make their last stand. In 1279, the Mongols send their general, Zhang Hongfan, to attack Zhao Bing and the remaining Song uh, in what becomes known as the Naval Battle of Yamen. Now, the Song forces put up uh, a fierce resistance to that, but they are eventually wiped out. And on the 19th of March, 1279, the Mongols advance towards Zhao Bing and kill everyone in their way. So they are squeezing in. Those jaws are getting tighter. The Song Prime Minister sees that there is no hope of escape, and so he picks up the child emperor and he takes him to the top of a cliff, and together they leap off into the sea to their deaths. Oh no, I thought you were going to say they jump on a boat and off they go. (laughs) I'm afraid not, no. And not only them, officials and concubines then follow with an estimated loss of 1,300. Oh my. Yeah. And this event marks the end of the Song dynasty. So he was the last of the Song. And actually, Pete, that was a fact provided to me by Celeste. No you, way. Yeah, do you remember you set her the challenge of finding some facts for us? I did. Yeah, well, she wrote to me and she sent me exactly this fact. Nice one, Celeste. Thanks, Celeste. Now, there is just one last thing to sort of cover off before we shift on to our next subject. Um, and that is that according to locals, prior to that battle, Zhao Bing and the Song remnants sought shelter in a monastery. There, the monks served them a soup, which the emperor loved so much, he named it Protect the Country Dish. 
<laughs> which, Again, he was eight. He was eight. Come on. Uh, which later was rebadged as patriotic soup. Patriotic soup. That's yeah. how I like to express my patriotism. There you go. So after Zhao Bing died, the soup became a way of honouring the last Song emperor. And so I thought perhaps we could honour the last emperor of the Song dynasty and share together some patriotic soup. I'm very much prepared to honour somebody through the medium of delicious soup. Okay, let me get you a bowl. Let's do it. Okay, so in front of you is a bowl of delicious protect the country dish. It is very green. It Uh, looks healthy. Well, the main ingredients are leaf vegetables, but you just got to think, right? You're in a monastery the night before the big battle, and this is what's served up to you by a couple of monks. Some people now add tofu or like a dry cure ham, a little bit of garlic, all very simple ingredients. My chef's instincts are detecting mushroom. There are mushrooms in here, yes. All right. Mm. There we go. It's incredibly green, isn't it? It is. It looks like a smoothie almost. Mmm, that's pretty good. Oh, I feel myself ready to fight for my country. And lose. (laughs) (laughs) But at least I had a nice soup, I suppose. It's the kind of soup where I feel like I'm going to smile later and just have green everywhere in between my teeth. (laughs) That is not a bad soup, is it? It's pretty decent. I like that. I'm a big fan of soup anyway. I've got a soft spot for a soup. And that is definitely a highly acceptable soup. Mmm, no, this is numb. Mm. Feeling quite hearty. Could be to do with the monosodium glutamate that they told me to put in as well. Okay, so, with a stomach full of hearty soup, let's talk about soup. (laughs) (laughs) And specifically, shark fin soup. Oh. Created first around the 11th to the 13th century, it quickly became considered one of the eight treasured foods from the sea. The story goes that an emperor wanted to show off his power and wealth by serving a rare delicacy to his guests. Now, shark fin was chosen because it was rare and only delicious after undergoing this complicated and elaborate preparation in which fins are obtained from a variety of sharks, the skin is removed before trimming them into shapes and boiling them for two days. Wow. It seems uh, you skipped over that first step, which seems in and of itself non-trivial. The Catching capture of a shark. <laughs> These were fishing people. I'm <laughs> guessing that that it was probably their nature to be able to catch a, a larger fish. And then two hours boiling, you say? No, two days. Two days. Sorry, two days boiling. Two days of boiling shark fin. Right. Yeah, must have smelt delicious. <laughs> I can imagine. But the fins themselves are tasteless. It's the broth that gives the taste. In fact, the only reason that the fins are included in the soup itself is for their snappy, gelatinous texture. Mmm. <laughs> it's been described as chewy, sinewy, and stringy. Mm-mm-mm. My three favourite things. <laughs> Have you got anything stringy? Also, uh, shark fins were considered to have multiple health benefits. Here's a list of some of them. They boost sexual potency. They enhance skin quality. They increase energy. They prevent heart disease, lower cholesterol, rejuvenate people, appetite enhancement, blood nourishment, beneficial to vital energy, kidneys, lungs, bones, many other parts of the body. I'm going to go out on a limb and say none of that is true. Correct. Recent studies have shown that there is no scientific evidence that shark fins can be used to treat any medical condition. In fact, research shows that it might even do the opposite, leading to sterility, dementia, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. 
So anyway, because of the association with fine dining and these supposed health benefits, shark fin soup has become considered a, a traditional part of formal banquets, right? Oh, the people trying to replicate what the emperor does. And it became hugely popular with a demand in the late 20th century with a market growing by 5% every year. It served as celebrations as a way to impress guests, such as weddings, important business deals. Basically, it's considered a way of sort of communicating your wealth, power, prestige, showing respect, honour and appreciation to your guests. See, that's a hard cultural trope to shift, isn't it? It's if That's what you do to demonstrate that you're well off. The, the only way you're really going to protect the shark is to find a different way to, if anything, stigmatise that so that you can say, I'm so well off, I've given you something else that's sustainable, I don't know. A hundred million sharks are killed every year. Oh, no. Every a hundred million. Oh, they're so yeah. awesome too. That's uh, such a shame. 70% decline in the past 50 years. Shark finning is also cruel, as I'm sure we're probably all aware. It involves catching the shark, cutting its fins off while it's alive, and then throwing the rest back overboard, because you don't use the rest of that, where it dies slowly and painfully, descending into the depths of the water. To this day, no sharks are protected in Hong Kong, nor are there any limits on their catches. Wow. Work is underway, though, as you rightly said, to sort of reverse the trend. Major hotels, chains have now banned the dish from functions and from, you know, weddings, that sort of thing. Artificial shark fins are becoming popular, so artificial shark fin soup. And also celebrities are now starting to endorse alternatives as sort of raising awareness type thing. The thing about a shark is he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you and he bites your nose, and those black eyes roll into white, you'll know. Because the thing about a wealthy shark is, he only eats the nose of his prey, leaving the rest to sink to the bottom of the murky depths. It bites the nose, savoring the gelatinous, tasteless stringiness of the nose's cartilage. In that first night, we lost 100 noses. And to the wealthy shark, that was just an average wedding banquet. What did people in Hong Kong during the 13th century think of sharks? I think they thought they were uh, fun colleagues. Colleagues of the sea. Well, we don't really know. But we do know that 17 sharks have been recorded in published text. The first real verifiable recording was only as recently as 1846. But we know that sharks were common uh, in the mid-20th century. Year-round shark fishing was common in Hong Kong, peaking in the late 1960s with 2,400 tonnes being caught annually. So wow. the seas were full of sharks at some point. Is there a particular type of shark we have to be finning, or is it any old shark, any old fin? Any old shark, any old fin. Mm. A variety of them. But it does mean that there would have been like an active shark population during the 13th century. Surveys of the South China Sea today show at least 109 species of shark, some of which would have inhabited the waters around Hong Kong. Sharks like the slender bamboo, the grey reef, the white cheek, silky, bull, black tip, hard nose, spot tail, milk, spade nose, hammerhead and whale. They all sound like supervillains. Black tip and hard nose. Black tip and hard nose are two goons that would stand either side of Hammerhead and they're about to give you a duffing up. Spade nose, definitely, come on. <laughs> but the most dangerous and the ones that are most likely to have had aggressive encounters with humans are the bull and the tiger sharks. The last attacks in Hong Kong being in 1995 and 2008. 
Point being, the fishing villages in these coastal regions would have been aware of these sharks. Indeed, the word hui jiao, often translated as tiger crocodile, is believed by some to refer to sharks. An 11th century text describes the hui jiao as looking like a snake with a tiger head several fathoms long. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, which does sound a bit like a shark, doesn't it? Only the text continues. <laughs> when it sees a human being, it traps him with its stinking saliva, then pulls him into the water and sucks his blood from his armpits. Oh, the armpits. Oddly specific. <laughs> it's peculiarly yeah. specific, isn't it? Yeah. So even with the most squintiest of eyes, you would think that maybe that's too far for a shark. But, <laughs> you know, still, uh, a snake with a tiger head several fathoms long does a little bit look like him. Uh, Wolfram Eberhard, professor of sociology at the University of California, agreed that it probably wasn't a shark, but stated in 1964 that it did, however, provide the best definition of something called a jowl. So what is a jowl? What's a jowl? I was going to ask that. Well, you, that was, it was right to ask you. <laughs> and you know what? We're going to find out after this. So according to Chinese mythology, as recorded by Ren Fang in his book, Records of Strange Things. <laughs> I want a copy of that book. That sounds great. A water snake, which lives for 500 years, will turn into a jowl. Ah. After a thousand years, a jowl will turn into a long, a dragon. Ah, okay. And after another 500 years, the long will turn into a chai long, which is a horned dragon. And after another thousand years, the chai long will turn into its final form, the Yinglong, a this winged some, dragon. Ooh, this is some epic Pokemon evolution, isn't it? That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the water snake and various dragons we know. But what's that proto-dragon that that water snake first turns into? The Jiao. Well, the exact nature of a Jiao is uncertain. It's described differently depending on who is describing it. But in general, they are described as creatures with a body like a fish, and a tail like a snake. They live in or around water, especially the river. They are called the god of the water animals. A second century dictionary says that if a pond reaches 3,600 fish, a jowl will come and be their leader. <laughs> I love the confidence with which they make these statements. So oddly specific, 3,600 exactly on the nose. Although, 400 years later in the 6th century, a farming almanac claims that it's just 360. They'd completely overblown Ridiculous. it in the past. <laughs> By the thousands. <laughs> <laughs> the jowl is exclusively female. It buries its eggs in mounds on the riverbank, and some say that a hatching jowl will cause a flood. So watch out for hatching jowls. And also, they make a noise like a mandarin duck. <laughs> now, we know that at the end of the summer, people would hunt the jowl, and that its flesh was purple, its bones blue, and its taste very savoury and pleasant. We know that the jowl hates china berries and colourful string. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this creating a picture for this you? This is, yeah. There's the string hatred that really brought it home for me. Yeah. In the year 25, a man named Oh Hui had a vision of a drowned nobleman who told him that the traditional offering of naked rice cakes to the river wasn't working because the jowl was eating them. So he suggested he wrap them in china berries and string instead. And the jowl didn't eat the rice cakes anymore. In 324, historian and poet Guo Po described the jowl as resembling a four-legged snake, with the largest being more than ten arm spans in width and could swallow a person whole. 
We know that in the third century, a man-eating Zhao was living in the stream beneath a bridge in Yixing County, and a young man called Zhao Chu spotted it, leapt down from the bridge, and stabbed it several times. Wow, that was bold. I would have run off. The stream filled with blood, and the beast later washed up in a lake where it died. Side note, Zhao Chu, the young man who leapt off the bridge and killed the Zhao, he went on to become a famous war general. You would. You'd have a jowl on your banner, wouldn't you? Going, look, I stabbed a jowl in the face. That's right. I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> so what is it? Oh, it's a crocodile, I've decided. Yeah, river dragon yeah. crocodile. But we think maybe it's crocodile combined with fossils of iguanodon. Ah. Right, the teeth of which we know were being sold in medicine shops at the time. So during our time period, we have a pretty reliable eyewitness account of crocodiles existing in South China. And that person you will have heard of. He was the explorer... Marco Polo. Ah. Generally recognised as the first European to have made a written record of China, Polo travelled east along the Silk Road and visited China at the very end of the Song Dynasty. So Polo, a gifted linguist, he became a favourite of Kublai Khan, now in charge of, of South China. And he served in Kublai Khan's court for 17 years. Wow. Yeah. In his book, The Description of the World, or the travels of Marco Polo. Polo describes a visit to Hangzhou, south of the Yangtze River, where he is amazed by a city with a population in excess, he says, of two million people. Wow, that's big. Yeah, he says the number of boats on the Yangtze stunned him, declaring that the total volume and value of the traffic on the river exceeds all the rivers of the Christians put together, plus their seas. Busy There's a load of people here, that. guys. <laughs> Yeah, but Polo also made reference to some large reptiles. He says, Great serpents of such a vast size as to strike fear into those who see them, and so hideous that the very account of them must excite the wonder of those who hear it. You may be assured that some of them are ten paces in length, some are more and some less. They have two forelegs near the head, but for foot, nothing but a claw. The head is very big, and the eyes are bigger than a great loaf of bread. The mouth is large enough to swallow a whole man and is garnished with great pointed teeth. By day, they live underground because of the great heat. At night, they go out to feed and devour every animal they can catch. And when these serpents are very hungry, sometimes it will seek out the lairs of lions or bears or other large wild beasts and devour their cubs without the sire and dam being able to prevent it. Indeed, if they catch the big ones themselves, they devour them too they can make no resistance. And in short, they are so fierce-looking and so hideously ugly that every man and beast must stand in fear and trembling of them. I would too. Uh, so now in southern China, during the 13th century, the native crocodiles was either the estuarine or the saltwater crocodile. They are the largest living known reptile, growing up to 6 metres, 20 feet in length, weighing up to 1,500 kilograms, 3,000 pounds. And they eat almost anything, as Polo says, ambushing prey and then drowning or swallowing it whole. They have the strongest bite of any living animal, capable of up to 34,000 newtons, or 8,000 pounds force. That's the weight of a fully grown adult hippo biting down. Wow. Those are the jaws of death, very much. <laughs> very much, yeah. Uh, records of the saltwater crocodile during the Song Dynasty show that large crocodiles preyed on both humans and livestock within the region. But with the increase in the human population, the saltwater croc population starts to decline. And the last record of a live saltwater croc in South China was during the 19th century, and only a skeleton has been found in Hong Kong, and that was in 1922. Wow. I mean, we've come across crocodiles before, haven't we? They seem to have spread quite widely across the world. 
world. Absolutely, especially saltwater ones, which can swim through the sea. They're the scary, <laughs> scary ones, aren't they? They are huge, yeah. But Marco Polo also refers to animals which spend the day in underground burrows, which the saltwater crocs don't do, which suggests he may have seen or heard stories about the Chinese alligator. So one of the smallest species of crocodilian, the Chinese alligator can grow to about one and a half to two metres in length. It's less than half the size of a sort of an American alligator. It's possible that they could grow up to about three metres, but there's no actual records that exist for that. The Chinese alligator are carnivores. The study in 1985 showed that 63% of its primary diet was snails. Oh, really? Yeah, which I was really surprised by. 16% was rabbits, 8.3% mollusks, 4.1% shrimp, and the remaining 6.8% being frogs, fish and insects. I feel less threatened now. Yeah. I might wrestle one. Apparently their teeth are sort of more designed for crushing shells. Oh, right. Yeah. But over the centuries, humans living in South China had converted the wildlands into sort of rice farms, uh, which caused the alligators to sort of interact more with humans and were said to be, in quotes, a great plague to the farmers. The farmers would kill and eat the alligators, uh, considering their flesh dragon meat. Mm-hmm. It's xiao, uh, which could cure colds and other ailments. Marco Polo spoke of this. He says, those who take them proceed to extract the gall from the inside, and he sells that at a great price, for you must know it furnishes the material for most precious medicine. Thus, if a person is bitten by a mad dog, they give them but a small pennyweight of this medicine to drink, and he is cured in a moment. Again, if a woman is hard in labour, they give her just such another dose, and she is delivered at once. Yet again, if one has any disease like the itch, or it may be worse, <laughs> and applies a small quantity of this gall, he shall easily be cured. So you see why it sells at such a high price. They also sell the flesh of this serpent, for it is excellent eating, and the people are very fond of it. Yum yum. Well, next time I get the itch, I know what to do. (laughs) In 1653, a priest called Martini, he arrives in China. (laughs) (laughs) He was he any time, any place, anywhere. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) This was the song. It's a shame, because he could have been a gin martini if he'd have been a bit earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and he's a missionary, and he describes the city, which is Quangxi, where the king kept ten crocodiles in a small lake, and he said that criminals were thrown to those crocodiles and said to be innocent only if not eaten. <laughs> <laughs> How encouraging. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, by the 1970s, the population was in massive decline. There was approximately 1,000 of the Chinese alligators remaining, and by 1998, it was in the jaws of death with just 11 of them remaining. That is a tiny population. <laughs> tiny population. But conservation efforts in the 2000s meant that the crocodile has been snatched from the jaws of death, Pete. You'll be pleased to hear. Hurrah! With 180 being counted in a nature reserve in 2005, oh, that's and good. 300 in 2017, indicating a reversal of the decline. Go crocodilians! Now, as part of my research for this episode, I spoke with Professor Chris Coggins from the Faculty in Geography and Asian Studies at Bard College at Simon's Rock. Professor Coggins has spent much of his academic life studying in China, and while the Chinese alligator isn't exactly his speciality, he did tell me that he has spent some time up close and personal with the Chinese alligator, in a rather unusual way. I'll let him explain. I can send you a video that I made of myself calling Chinese alligators using the call that I learned in Florida when I was a little boy. 
And I could not wait to see if the Chinese alligators spoke the same dialect after being disconnected from their brethren for probably over 10 millions of years because of plate tectonics. And it was a nature reserve, uh, the Yangtze alligator nature reserve. And it was 2017. And there was a pond in the woods with about 30 alligators. So I went over there and I started going... And literally in seconds, there were gators converging on my spot. I was up on a, a deck overlooking the pond. What I was saying to them is, I am a newborn gator. I'm coming out of my big incubator compost pile nest. And if a male hears that, he's saying, hmm, sounds like a good snack. And the females <laughs> go, I have to go over there and protect those poor children from those idiotic males. <laughs> So everybody heads over towards the sound. It's it's fascinating. So that was Professor Coggins, or nice. perhaps Dr. Doolittle, we should call him. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and look, we're going to hear some more from him uh, after this. I look forward to it. Okay, so we've talked about the jowl, but like the jowl, the tiger is a potent symbol in Chinese culture. It also has jaws of death. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is another snappy creature. It is indeed. The white tiger is one of the four sacred animals of the Chinese constellation. Uh, Those born in the year of the tiger are thought to be brave, strong and sympathetic. And 2022, this year, is the year of the tiger. Ah, hurrah. I'm a boar. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) And perhaps because of the association with that strength and potency of a tiger, that for centuries, traditional Chinese medicine has focused on consuming parts of the tiger. Um, Things like tiger bone wine uh, for rheumatism, weakness or paralysis, tiger penis soup to increase sexual virility, tiger whiskers for toothaches, and tiger eyeballs for epilepsy. Oh, Lord. Yeah. It's worth noting, though, that the pain-relieving ointment, you know, tiger balm? Yes. You'll have heard of that, I'm sure. Sold commercially, does not, and has never had, ever, any animal products in it, especially tiger. So it's just purely a herbal remedy made with menthol, mint, camphor, kajaput, cassia, and clove. I like a bit of tiger balm, I must admit. Yeah, no tigers. That's good to know. I'd, I'd be disturbed if it turned out dabbing a bit of tiger behind my ears. Yeah. Did you know there's a tiger balm theme park in Singapore? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, fun fact. Anyway, point is, tigers are a big part of the culture and history of China. And in southern China, we're talking about the native species, which is Felis tigris. So in your mind, Pete, when I say picture a tiger, yes. you're most likely thinking of Panthera tigris tigris. Uh, probably. Yeah, I'm a Panthera man, <laughs> largely. <laughs> that's the Bengal tiger. Uh, yeah, that's sort of the, the classic image of a tiger is the Bengal tiger. And that's found in India, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh. Similar in looks, though, the South China tiger and the Bengal tiger, uh, but there are a few subtle differences. So the South China tiger has shorter teeth, a smaller bit of the skull, which is surrounding the brain. Its eyes are closer together and a coat, which is lighter and more yellowish. It has whiter paws, face and stomach, and it has more narrower and sharp edged stripes. I'll keep an eye out for those things when it's bearing down on me out of the grasslands. <laughs> like, ah, I'm about to be murdered by a South China tiger. Yeah. It's the smallest big cat in mainland Asia, with the exception of the Sumatran tiger, 
of Indonesia. It measures up to 265 centimetres, 104 inches in length, weighs up to 175 kilograms, 386 pounds, and remains have been found all over South China, down to Guangdong, Hong Kong. Uh, they have a feast or famine feeding style, which means that they have big meals infrequently, so that when they do eat, they consume up to 40 kilograms, 88 pounds of meat at one time. That's the same as like a large dog, a punch bag, or 16 house bricks. <laughs> <laughs> so really, you're hoping to run along one of these guys just after they've had that meal. Oh, absolutely. They're then, not running after you at that point. Then you can pat it on its head and give it a hug. Don't do that. <laughs> In most cases, tigers approach prey from the side or behind from as close as distance as possible. They don't like running great distances to try and catch you. They'll just spring up on you. And they grasp the prey's throat and kill it that way. They then drag the carcass into cover, sometimes over several hundred metres away, and then they eat it. And they eat cattle, boar, deer, occasionally porcupines and hares, rabbits. And as human populations have grown, they have increasingly taken to eating farmers' livestock, even the farmers themselves. So, in fact, between the year 48 and 1953, more than 10,000 people have been killed or injured by tigers in South China. That's one and a half people a month every year for just over a thousand years. I'll wait, my turn. <laughs> it's like a lottery. <laughs> yeah. Everyone gets a go at some point. That's a lot of people. I mean, I, I love a tiger. They're beautiful creatures. But if you lived in proximity of one, you'd be within your rights to be a bit wary. Anyway, that's a conservative figure, right? 10,000 people. 395 of those records don't specify the number of casualties, just that an attack has occurred. So it could have killed a number of people. Our friend Marco Polo, in his time in South China, talks of seeing lions, which we can assume meaning tigers, uh, because he says this, The emperor hath several great lions, beasts whose skins are coloured in the most beautiful way, being striped all along the sides with black, red and white. These are trained to catch boars and wild cattle, bears, wild asses, stags, and other great or fierce beasts. And tis a rare sight, I can tell you, to see those lions giving chase to such beasts as I have mentioned. I talked to Professor Coggins about this, and this is what he had to say. I've used the translation of Marco Polo's million lies. You know, he was called il milionare because he was believed to have just told just millions of lies. Whether he was lying or not, he was chronicling some very detailed information that was firsthand information from someone who had been, or maybe several people who'd been in China. And they really seemed true to life. These were very compelling descriptions of a particular region in Fujian. And I was really actually quite impressed. He also describes how tigers were trained to bow to the emperor. I can completely believe that too, because of this sort of notion of tribute and also the notion that tigers were highly intelligent and they had agency and they decided what was right and wrong. They had a sort of a moral sensibility and they would kill people sometimes who had deforested areas recklessly. They were sort of moral authorities and moral guardians of the forest. There's some really wonderful tiger lore out there. So there were tigers in South China. So I asked Professor Coggins if there were likely tigers in Hong Kong during the 13th century. And this was his thoughts. Hong Kong Island and what is now Shenzhen in the Pearl River Delta, these areas would not have been heavily settled um, until much later, even after the 13th century. Now, 
I have to be careful when I say that because, you know, we have to remember that even the Qin dynasty, when the Qin emperor between 221 and 207 BCE creates the first imperial dynasty and China becomes an empire, they send troops down and they have garrison towns down in the Pearl River Delta. But all around them is, you know, barbarians, the, the Yaman, the, these all kinds of non-Han, non-Chinese people, and lots of wild beasts like tigers and leopards and alligators and crocodiles. And so these were wild areas. And outside of those uh, garrison towns, uh, it would have been indigenous people. But in Hong Kong, I seriously wonder if the population density of these Han farmers who really start to transform the environment and get in trouble with tigers, I seriously wonder if the density was high enough to really do that. Now, I know that in the Guangzhou area, I know that I recorded tiger attacks in that area, but they really pick up after the year 1000 of the Common Era. So if we're talking 13th century, you do see more and more Han clearance of Southern uplands and lowlands. And there are a lot of attacks in valleys, especially Lake Poyang and Jiangxi and Lake Dongting and Hunan. So I have to say, I don't think anybody really, really knows. And I think it would have stayed pretty wild, you know, until the Hakkas really start opening up land 16th century that they might start really having trouble with tigers because they themselves are creating enough environmental disturbance and bringing in lots of water buffaloes and other livestock. So yeah, it's unclear if tigers were in Hong Kong, but they were certainly in the area and certainly they were causing problems in later years. Uh, For example, there are reports uh, that a a community not far from where Hong Kong is today, men who tended their herds or were just walking along trails would frequently disappear and be found later mangled and half-eaten. The residents were so petrified of tiger attacks that at night they would all bolt their gates and bring farm animals into the courtyards of their homes to keep them safe. It was said that crops were going untended, paralysis had begun to settle in, and people were afraid to stir from their houses. Well, right. Yeah, I would too. I have every sympathy with them. Right? Spooky. Do you want to go to the shops? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Now, talking about that fear factor, I asked Professor Coggins about the dynamic between man and tiger because I was kind of confused by the combination of fear and respect that the Chinese people showed. You know, for example, in Europe and America, where wolves had a similar relationship with people, they don't have that same level of admiration. So uh, this is what he had to say. If you look at the history of wolves in Europe and in North America, they were seen as satanic. So they were ascribed the satanic agency of dark and awful and evil, you know. And interestingly, the tiger was never ever evil per se. In fact, one could argue that uh, the idea of evil never developed the monstrous proportions in China that it did in in European and Euro-American. In culture. So the tiger was both extremely dangerous and um, something to be feared, but also something to be revered. And this is why people even, even now, even in recent times, put little caps on their children with tiny little tiger effigies with little Wang characters, meaning king. And this protects the child from evil spirits. And in my book, The Tiger and the Pangolin, you see uh, where someone has taken terracotta and sculpted a tiger image on the side of a house and they put a little Wang character, the I showed Zhuang, the king of 100 beasts. So the tiger was sort of like the guardian of the forest and the wild realms. And so they took on a sort of a divine quality. 
And this comes out of, you know, very ancient shamanism and animism, where this is an animal that can also protect us from uh, certain kinds of really bad things. And but we have to have a sort of reciprocity with it where we recognize its power. And, and that comes out of hunting cultures in which this was a deity figure. And so the Chinese might not have quite deified the tiger, but they certainly regarded it as a spiritual agency that had to be given a lot of respect. And there are all kinds of strategies for dealing with tigers. You know, if a tiger killed more than one person in an area, the local government official had to take responsibility for it because of part of the mandate of heaven. The idea that the political system must maintain order in the terrestrial realm. And so the Chinese have an expression, xia, everything under heaven, everything in the earthly plane. It's a political realm, but it's also a realm of natural phenomena. And so the powers of the cosmos uh, really manifest themselves here and in nature. And so if you see tigers coming and killing a bunch of people, you know, man eaters, the government is implicated, right? The government is implicated. It's like, you guys must be corrupt. You're not managing this realm in an orderly fashion. And so here the tigers are coming out and it's a just kind of thing. So you guys better get on it and start praying to those tigers and praying to whatever gods you can to get some order in this place. Now, if we could do this with global warming, this would be it for a whole lot of officials, right? <laughs> well, he's not wrong, is he? No, I can certainly think of a few. Oh, loads of them. I've got a list here. <laughs> yeah. But it's worth bearing in mind that despite the respect that was being shown to the tigers, it you know didn't prevent us from continuing to build onto their lands and effectively push them to a point of more man-eating interaction. In fact, by 1940s, the number of tiger sightings in Hong Kong had skyrocketed. And at that point, the tigers had entered the jaws of death. Because in 1949, when the Communist Party came to power, the tigers were considered such a problem that all remaining 4,000 of them were identified as a pest and marked for extermination. 35 years of uncontrolled hunting meant that by 1982, only 150 were left. Wow. Yeah, and by 1987, there were only 30 individuals left. After Mao's death in 1977, the Chinese government outlawed the killing of tigers, but no wild tigers have been seen since. Uh, the last tracks were recorded in the 1990s, and in 1996 it was listed as critically endangered. And despite the use of camera traps, GPS, extensive surveys, none have been seen since. So, the likelihood is that the South China tiger is now extinct in the wild. Boo! However, in May 2007, the remains of a cow and a black bear were found, which seemed to have been killed by a tiger. So I asked Professor Coggins if he thought this was a sign that the tiger was out there somewhere, and this is what he had to say. I think that it's extinct in the wild. Ron Tilson, he and Philip Nias and uh, an undergraduate student, Jeff Montifering, they won some funding from World Wildlife Fund, and they did a survey in multiple provinces, and maybe four provinces with camera traps, and they didn't find compelling evidence that any tigers were surviving. So they concluded that the tiger in 2001, that the tiger was extinct in the wild. It is sad 
But on the other hand, friends of mine in Fujian uh, who work in the Neihuashan Reserve have tried to protect the South China tiger in captivity. And they have captive tigers in the Neihuashan Reserve. And then there's a, a tiger reserve in South Africa, and she runs an organization called Save China's Tigers. And they're raising tigers in the wild in South Africa and getting them to kill wild, like they're trying to rewild them. But the South China tigers that are in captivity are really inbred. It's very sad. They really are in the jaws of death. But the thing is, it's not over yet. It could be that, and this is what some uh, geneticists have argued is that you can still breed the South China tiger with the Southeast Asian tiger legitimately because they don't think that the idea of these original eight subspecies is necessarily a legitimate demarcation between different types of tigers. And on the other hand, dare I say, CRISPR, you know, who knows what the genetic engineering of the future may look like. So it's it's uh, sort of maybe more open territory than we think. But I will <laughs> tell you, they better do a better job restoring the prey base. Because when I was doing surveys of wildlife in Meihuashan in 94 and 95, there were many, many more hoofed animals, the, the species that tigers need to survive in the wild. There were many, many more. And a lot of them have been hunted out and killed in a variety of crazy ways. So, so it looks like the Chinese tiger may well have a comeback. Well, that's encouraging because I was going to suggest we start reintroducing the tiger to the Croydon area. I thought it would be, might be exciting if you were wandering the high street and every now and then you'd see a tiger padding by. I mean, we do live in Croydon now. I mean, why, why you would want to introduce a man-eating tiger to where you live seems beyond me, but I'm hoping sure. they can't operate the buttons of the lift. So... <laughs> You'd be able to look out from your apartment and see them roaming the streets yeah. and eating the uh, other people, not us. Anyway, I just want to say a huge thank you to Professor Coggins. His insight was genuinely really helpful in the construction of this week's episode. And, it, you know, if any listeners are interested in learning more about the South China tiger, you know, you can do no better than to read his book, The Tiger and the Pangolin, Nature, Culture and Conservation in China. And also his chapter in King of a Hundred Beasts, a remarkable volume called Tigers of the World, which was edited by Ron Tilson and Philip Nias. And, you know, if you're inspired to learn more about wider Chinese culture, here's Professor Coggins to talk about his new book. Please do mention my brand new book, Sacred Forests of Asia, Spiritual Ecology and the Politics of Nature Conservation. And it's the first broad comparative work on how the myriad differences and notable similarities between sacred village sacred forests in these, you know, very diverse and different realms. So, and that's easy to find online. And that's uh, Rutledge and it's the EarthScan Forest Library. So that came out last week. So yeah, we're going to be picking up a copy of Sacred Forests of Asia, Spiritual Ecology and the Politics of Nature Conservation as co-edited by Professor Coggins and Bisha Chen and suggest that you do the same. And on that note, Peter, we have reached the end of our journey. That was a very interesting session, Ryan. I found plenty of jaws of death. There was a theme there, wasn't there, which is the scary jaw animal mm. is scary. And, and then people. it turns out that we are the ones hunting them into extinction. And then we've got to kind of bring them back from the brink because we don't know when to stop. It's exactly right. But would they do the same? Probably not. They just <laughs> munch us until we were gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're better. Well, enough of this, though. We should get to the preparation for the next episode. That was excellent, and there's more excellence to come. Yeah, it's your turn now. It is. I'm excited to see what you're going to get. Okay, well, you want to wheel out the Durzo later? Okay, here it comes.
I like it. I get excited and scared in equal measure every time we do this. I know. Okay, Ryan, do your thing. Okay, and your place is... Germany. Germany! Yes! Big, lots of things. They wrote stuff down. That's excellent. <laughs> okay, do you want to know your time? I do. Okay, your time is... 1650 Ooh. to 1700. I have no idea what was going on there, but I've, I'm, com- I'm, I'm confident. I'm hoping there's going to be something building there. building confidence in you. Look yes. All right, so it's all down to the topic then. Yeah, it's going to be space or something to make it difficult. <laughs> and your topic is... Community. Community. Ooh. So it's community in Germany during the 1650 to 1700. Well, that's very exciting. Thank you very much, Ryan. I feel confident you're going to find stuff. There'll be something. Those Germans were always up to something, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> das ist true. That is our show for this week. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, or just to say hello, reach out through our website, hhepodcast.com, or you can email us, Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. We love it when you guys write to us. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendations can really help us bring the show to new listeners. Also, if you're on the social media, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast and subscribe there and you'll get an alert when we post one minute animated bites. We'll be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. And thank you to you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to History Happened Everywhere. got those stripes on your face. Oh, what, these? Yeah, no, I've applied some tiger balm. Tiger balm isn't brown. No, no, not tiger balm. Tiger bum. Yeah, I got it from a Chinese pharmacist. It's great for the skin. Ryan, have you not learned anything from your own episode? The tigers are dying out. Oh, but don't worry, this isn't real tiger bum. It's lab-grown bum. And they make hair products too. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called shampoo. Ryan, that's terrible. I know. (laughs) Ha, 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 